welcome to the CMF Podcast, where we discuss all things mentorship and cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. I'm Mel Kay, a venture associate at Cyber Mentor Fund. And today we are going to be focusing on hiring best practices for both founders and those on the job hunt within the cybersecurity ecosystem. I'm excited to be joined today by Jamie Cummings, who is a partner at JM Search and a member of the firm's cybersecurity and IT executive practices. Jamie has more than 14 years of executive recruiting experience and is a recognized leader in advising organizations on the recruitment, assessment, development, and retention of technology, security, and risk management talent. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Let's let's just get right into it. So what are your biggest red flags for leaders from mid to large tech companies looking to get involved in an early stage startup for the first time? The experience that my colleagues and I all have, whether it's tech, co- really, whether it's a technology company or quite frankly, from any other industry, is that it's not unusual for someone who spent the entirety of their career, the majority of it, in much bigger companies with more resources to really underestimate the difficulty of scaling down what's really going to take. Mm-hmm. And as such, that's something we really try to vet as best we can through the interview process. Uh, not just us, but you know all the stakeholders within our clients. We also really try to, uh, the referencing and back channel referencing is an important part of that. So the, the candidate may tell us what we th- they think we want to hear during the process, but ultimately it takes a lot of vetting. It can be done, but that's probably the biggest red flag is underestimating how tough it's really going to be. I guess, and along with that, there's some some other aspects of that, specifically things around speed of Mm decision-making, that bias for action in a big organization, they may uh, be, they may not like, but they might be more accustomed to a much more onerous or rigorous or bureaucratic decision-making process where in a smaller environment, the expectation is you need to make a decision, you know, 80, 20, figure it out and go. I guess the, the other piece along with it is resources. You know, there's the, the phrase of rolling up your sleeves is often a little bit overused, but it's absolutely true in that in a big organization, it can be a bit of a crutch to have resources to lean on for different things where you're just not going to have them in a smaller, more environment. And so the last piece of that is that you need to be creative. You need to pivot a lot more quickly. You have to be flexible. If you find out that the voice of the customer is telling you that your product's not doing what you think it needs to, or something else in the, you're getting sort of, sort of market signals, you better be able to figure out how to pivot and adjust quickly, or you're just not going to make it. So those are really the biggest red flags that we've seen. And we try to vet as best we can as part of the assessment process. Yeah. So do you mind just filling in a little bit of color as you're going through that assessment process? How are you, the recruiter or the person who's doing the hiring, spotting out those red flags? Uh, I think one of the first things we try to do is really get a sense, even before we get into a person's experiences, is their motivation. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you want to do this? Is it just a shiny object? And you think, oh, wow, something different and dynamic. And, and oh, by the way, there could be a nice upside in the back end. You hear about people making a lot of money. I want to go chase that. Is, is their heart really in it? So as best you can, before you even um, really dig into their backgrounds, that's the first thing to look for. But then ultimately, for me personally, I do a lot of digging into specific examples of what someone did and how they did it. I call it situation action result. So, hey, Mel, you parachuted into this company. What were the expectations? What did you inherit? Mm-hmm. What was your assessment of what the situation was on the ground? And then 
what did you decide to do? And how, how did you go about doing it? What resources did you use? How did you work through others? What obstacles did you encounter? How did you overcome them? So really get into specific examples, not just, well, tell me about a time when I'll actually go through. So you joined this company, what was the state of affairs and how did you navigate what you needed to do? You know, I, I, I think doing it in that manner, you really dig into what makes a person tick, yeah. how they get things done, how they overcome obstacles. So I try to ask for multiple examples of that mm-hmm. throughout the process. And the other thing is when we do referencing and, and actually referencing, we believe is very important, not as a formality towards the end of the process, but along the way, really talk to the references and, just, and say, hey, our sense is uh, it's going to be very important for this person to roll up his or her sleeves get this done. Can you tell me about a time where you've seen them do that before? So those are, that's how I try to do as best I can in the interview and referencing process. That's actually an interesting point. You know, you're asking similar questions to the references to the candidate that you're talking to, to almost see if those answers are aligning. You know, are you, what are some of the key attributes that you look for in high impact early hires? You know, is it curiosity, bias to action, you know, is it polish or presentation? Do you mind giving us some of your thoughts here? Polish or presentation, th- those are nice, but ultimately we're looking for attitude, the drive, the fire in the belly, if you will, mm-hmm. aptitude, you know, uh, intelligence, I think, intellectual curiosity, grittiness, tenacity. Those are the sort of things that I think really are going to enable a person to have a lot of impact. And I think also, Getting back to what I mentioned a little bit before about uh, people having to roll up their sleeves and do more than they might in a big organization with more resources at their disposal. They need to be a utility player, I guess, to use a sports analogy. You have to be ready, willing, and able to wear multiple hats and do so effectively and have the ability to give something a shot, even though you may not be comfortable that you've done it before, because who else is going to do it, right? So you have to do that. Absolutely biased to action. You know, I think analysis paralysis in a small organization is is obviously not a good thing. I think the last thing that you may not get as much of within a much larger organization is just transparency in your communications. You don't have a lot of time to be messing around. You just got to get to the point and move on and get things done. So those are some of the attributes that we found are really going to have a higher chance of leading to success in a smaller member organization. Yeah. You know that before I was with CMF, I was interviewing at an early stage startup as well. And one of the questions that they asked me was, would you be willing to take out the trash? And I was sitting there for a second. <laughs> and I was like, what a, what a random question. But I think it leads into your point. Like everyone in the organization needs to be able to wear multiple hats and be dry, you know, and be driven and doing kind of odd jobs that you might not think are relevant. But if the trash needs to get taken out, if there's only so many people on the team, someone's got to do it. I thought that was a kind of an interesting question to ask. It's really relevant. In fact, I, it's not exactly apples to apples, but for me personally, uh, I just spent about nine years as a partner in a $2 billion publicly traded 800 pound gorilla of a search firm. Mm-hmm. I had an executive assistant that handled all the scheduling with candidates and my clients and handled a lot of my travel and did all our status reports. And now I'm at a firm that doesn't have 9,000 employees. We have 140. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes I've had people ask me if I have an executive assistant. And my answer is, you're talking to them. 
<laughs> so exactly. I've had to get used to doing a lot of things mm-hmm. that I didn't have to before. We just don't have the resources and I'm comfortable with it, but I have to, it was an adjustment. I have to admit. And that took, a, took me a little bit of time because quite frankly, it was very nice to have an assistant to do certain things for me, but it was a crutch. I can do without them, but I definitely had to flex some muscles. I wasn't flexing before. I do think it, it can be underestimated pretty easily. If you're yeah. Yeah. Well, when we were speaking last, you mentioned that companies tend to hire on past experience, which may not necessarily be the best approach and can generate mediocre candidates who don't deliver on that impact. I mean, it kind of sounds like you have a story of that on yourself where you, you know, you worked in an organization that was a lot different than where you're at today. And so managing those changed expectations and needing to drive the better results, it isn't always attributed to your past job. I think it's a fair assessment. A little bit of a calculated risk on the firm's part to bring me on board. I was absolutely used to having more resources at my disposal, used to having the big brand name behind me that I could rely on Mm -hmm. to get more inbound. Now I have to be much grittier and scrappier. So Mm -hmm. I I can certainly uh, attest to that from a personal perspective. But my partners and I would agree that more often than not, our clients are hiring us with the perception that you can go find us. Wonder Woman or Superman who's done everything we want because it's, I think it's human nature for people to want to de-risk things as best they can when they're making a really big decision for the organization. But uh, past experience is helpful, but especially in in an environment where you have to be comfortable with ambiguity, move quickly and be dynamic. Um, Some of the other softer skills are that we talked about before. I think it often be way more important than having been there, done that. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there's a balance to be struck there personally that past experience is good, but you still have to get to the attributes and the characteristics of what drives a person. How do they get things done? Uh, and those actually can be highly hiring for talent as a po- and, and fit, quite frankly, mm-hmm. culturally with your organization can be better indicators of success than having done something before in another environment. Yeah. So if we're, you know, you're an organization and you're trying to steer clear of the been there, done that, where do you go to find candidates that may be early in their careers, but have a high likelihood of being high performers? One thing we found is that it's not an absolute, but a good proxy for determining good level of talent is someone who got their early career experience in an environment where they got a chance to see what good really looks like in a well-established organization, perhaps it's one that has a formal structured program for, for talent development. And we call those academy companies, quite frankly. And they spend the early part of their career there learning a lot of best practices, but then they don't stay there long enough that they call what I call, what I would say is institutionalized, that they're so used to doing things a certain way or with a bigger organization with resources that they can't adapt to a small environment. And I'm not really big necessarily always on educational pedigree, but we have found at times there are people who early part of their career, in addition to having been with some of these academy companies, they've come from like a top business school or otherwise, that can be at least some sort of proxy for good, strong, critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, once again, we don't look at that exclusively, but those are data points, things we look for. 
And it's not unusual for people who are very successful CEOs or, or other senior leaderships in other senior leadership roles within smaller, high growth or medium sized technology organizations to have cut their teeth early on in bigger organizations. And then they realized I've learned what I want to here, but I really don't want to be in this big bureaucratic organization. I want to go apply what I've learned mm-hmm. elsewhere. So what we found sometimes the ideal candidate is we'd love to find someone who was at XYZ company, a big brand name company, and they've already proven on someone else's time and it's someone else's dime that they can make the transition. That's the person we want. That's the kind of been, been there, done that, that they want. That's assuming that they have the grit, tenacity, and the fire mobility to go do it again. Yep. So I kind of want to follow on here, but pivot a little bit and chat on the need for diversity within the tech recruiting process. Obviously, the cybersecurity talent and teams that are out there today are a pretty homogenous group en masse. What can organizations mm-hmm. do to help prioritize bringing and retaining quality candidates that do come from a diverse background? Well, I think it could be a little bit of a chicken and egg, but one of the things we often hear from candidates to whom diversity of the company they join is important is how committed is your organization to diversity? And they're going to go to your website. They're going to look at the executive leadership team. They can look at the board of directors. So part of it, I think, is practicing what you preach, ideally, Mm -hmm. is if you want diverse talent, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another to demonstrate it. That's one good starting point. Another is to ideally put in place hiring and assessment processes that are as objective as possible Mm -hmm. and look at people through the lens of who's the most qualified. And, you know, I do think that targeting people who bring diversity, obviously, is, is part of it. But targeting and engaging someone is one thing. Having uh, enough of a compelling opportunity for them to join you as an organization is another. So on an individual basis as a company, those are the things I think you can do really is have practice what you preach, uh, have very transparent, objective, merit-based ways of hiring and promoting people, and just equally give people opportunity to, to progress. On the macro level, I do think there's a bigger issue, especially within technology, mm-hmm. whether it's STEM or you know, from an education perspective or otherwise, that the top of the funnel needs a lot more diverse talent. Otherwise, people like me get paid essentially to facilitate a, a game of musical chairs of diverse talent, but it doesn't yeah. really solve the bigger macro problem. So I, I expanded a little bit. I think I maybe answered more than your question, but that's those have been my observations. Yeah, no. And um, thank you for expanding. I mean, we completely agree, you know, trying to bring in more diversity from the very beginning, not just when they're starting to look for jobs is really key to massive shift in this industry that I think is it's, it's time. Yeah. Well, you can't create people that don't exist farther down the the pipeline. You have to, uh, this is on the education system. This is on people within the technology industry. How do you make your line of work attractive to those who are in high school and college way before they actually get into the workforce? That's Mm -hmm. once again, that's a, that's a bigger macro challenge. And I think a lot of times when we talk to it, it, you know, we need to look at from an education standpoint, but there also are some times where it may not be a, it's a pipeline issue. And I think you made a good point where you need to 
be take away any form of bias and be promoting rightfully based on merit um, and be supporting the people who, you know, may not gotten chances before that and help bolster them up to be the employee that, you know, they can be. Well, even before you get to the the point where you have very objective, unbiased measures for promotion to get the experiences to be assessed, you need to be given the opportunities, whether it's that's that special project or the opportunity to expand your skill set. So it, it comes even before the promotion process into the overall professional development that you have as an organization to really give everyone equal opportunity, not to be not only to be promoted, but to really legitimately put themselves in a position where they've built the skill sets and experience so they can be promoted. So it, it goes even farther back before the promotion process, of course. Well, I think this is a great time to jump into the next question. How long do you typically give someone to step into a new role and get up to speed? You know, is that stage dependent? Is it role dependent? Very good question. I do think that in some ways it can be a little bit role dependent as far as putting points on the board objectively. So for example, as a maybe a CFO or a chief marketing officer, maybe you can at least demonstrate some more immediate impact because you're dealing with more highly quantitative details on the business. Whereas if you're in product or, or revenue type roles, there's more of a delayed effect to the impact that you're going to have on the organization. So it can be a little bit role dependent in that matter. But as far as really adapting to the organization, getting your sea legs, if you will, mm-hmm. we found that generally speaking, agnostic of the function that you're in, it takes at least a good 90 days to just get settled in, Yeah, figure out who the stakeholders are, really get to the point where maybe feel more comfortable actually contributing to meetings and dialogues in a meaningful way. It's not unusual for us during the interview process for you know the hiring manager or someone else on the interview team to say, what's your 30, 60, 90 day plan? But then also really look at things in terms of how would you define success in the first year? That first year is going to fly by. But Really, I think 90 days before, regardless of the person's function, they start to feel comfortable actually putting some points on the board having some impact. That's a general rule of thumb. Yeah. And so my question I was going to ask, you know, within those 90 days, how much support are you finding is needed to help them come up to speed? Um, you know, and and how can you maybe sniff out within those first 90 days if it's not going to be the right fit? That's a good question. I will say that I don't have as much direct direct visibility into that because once mm-hmm. once we recruit someone, we do like to stay in touch with them and check in. Usually, the ninety day mark is a good point to do it. But to answer the first part of the question, an onboarding plan is is really important because uh, the the interview process you know that you're going to get to know a few of the stakeholders, but really in more of a superficial way, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, so an onboarding plan is really, really critical because those first, the first few months to start building the connective tissue with your colleagues and understand the organization are pretty, pretty important. And without that, if the person's having to really find their own way, especially if they don't understand some of the cultural or political dynamics of the organization, even small to medium-sized companies have their own politics, if you will. So if you don't have someone to help them navigate that, 
you're, you're not going to set them up for success. Uh, but as far as the second part of the question, how, how can you really tell? I don't think I, I don't really think I can answer that because I really don't have a chance to see it firsthand. Because okay. okay. once the once the executives on a board, we may it's hear on them. something here and there. <laughs> They're yeah. off to the races. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I could speculate, but I don't know if I can answer that intelligently for you. That is just fine. I did sneak that question in there. So that's okay. It's a good question. I would answer yeah. it if I could, but I, you know, yeah. that that's probably someone, you know, uh, like a, a CEO or a CHRO who's brought a lot of people on board. They could probably feel that better, that question better than me. All right. So <laughs> we all know that you know, developers are important in building what startups want to get out into the world and into the market. But which non-engineering hires do you find make the biggest difference in an early stage company? Our team's experience is that it's all about product, product marketing, product management, and I would say even customer success, whether it's uh, enablement, onboarding, services, support, because it's one thing for the sales team to go sell it, but if you're not delivering effectively, you're not going to get much repeat or referral business, quite frankly. So, um, and even it wasn't long ago, we recruited, a, we helped the company recruit a chief marketing officer and product marketing was very much an important part of that evaluation process. So those are, those are the ones that uh, come to mind. Sales is always important. Mm-hmm. But uh, anything to do with the product, whether it's developing it, managing it, marketing it, or selling it, especially in an, in an early stage company, without that, everything else isn't really going to matter as much. Yeah. Okay. So now let's put ourselves in the context that we're at a you know an awesome early stage startup. They're accelerating. We're doing well. What are the best practices for performance compensation when the rapidly evolving company keeps outgrowing its KPIs? We have found that our clients, and by the way, a lot of our clients are uh, private equity or late stage venture firms that manage portfolios. So we as a firm have spoken with enough clients to have a bit of a sense for this. And the biggest thing is they can't be static or rigid. As the company grows and evolves, the board, quite frankly, needs to regularly evaluate and adjust the KPIs accordingly to do their best to align the executive team's incentives with the expected performance and then, of course, the compensation that comes from that. Mm -hmm. So the best thing is frequently reevaluating and adjusting as necessary what the KPIs are, probably at least annually. In a really high growth company, it might be more frequently, but they need to be constantly looked at and adjusted as necessary. Yeah. Is there a recommended trade-off between salary, equity, and runway that should be expected for certain roles within a startup? Yeah, there's some general rules of thumb. It's a little different for the CEO and then the direct reports. And just uh, to provide a little context, our firm... Those are generally the levels where we're working. So below that, I wouldn't have as much visibility. But uh, yeah, so for it's there's an inverse relation between the expected cash and the size of the company, generally speaking. So it's a much smaller earlier stage company. There's a different risk reward profile. So the cash expectations, at least early on, would certainly be lower because 
you want to significantly reduce your burn rate, obviously. But general rule of thumb, the CEO is going to expect anywhere between three to 7% of the company, give or take. Mm -hmm. And the direct reports probably between half to one and a half or 500 to 150 basis points. And the, you still have to have a certain standard of living. So there needs to be some cash element there, but the smaller the company, the smaller the cash expectations and the higher the the equity rewards as a general rule of thumb. That makes sense. So obviously right now there is a great resignation happening, especially within the cybersecurity industry. You know, cyber talent is limited and it's also highly sought after, which ultimately make gives the power in the hands of the talent. So with the with those parameters, you know, what are some good ways to retain talent in a competitive in a competitive environment when you can't compete on salary? The first thing that comes to mind is really tapping into passion, alignment with the vision and, the, and, and your mission. We have found that especially when it comes to information security, there is a bit of a, a mission orientation to it. You're not just, it's not making cookies that people are going to eat or something like that, right? It's, it's actually something that could really contribute to ultimately the security of our country if you want to uh, mm-hmm. really look at it from a bigger picture perspective. So how are you contributing to the mission is one thing. And alignment on that mission with the the employees' values and and what's important to them. That's one. Another is, uh, in addition to being aligned with the mission and being passionate about your work, people are also thinking longer term about their own careers. So providing them meaningful opportunities to learn, to constantly develop, to stretch themselves, to try the new and different ways that they could set themselves up to be successful, to take on more responsibilities, either within your company or quite frankly, wherever they may go next. So if you're not affording them the opportunities for continued development and progression, and or they're not aligned with your mission and vision, chances are someone is knocking on the door who might be able to provide that and they'll vote with their feet. So those are, those are some of the most important things we found that keep people engaged. Uh, in addition to compensation. But yeah, if you can't compete on compensation, those are some other hooks hopefully you can really use to keep your team members engaged and interested in staying with you. So at the end of you know each one of our podcasts, we really try to give anecdotes to the conversation that we're having. So I'm throwing, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. And I would love if you could <laughs> share um, an example of success that you've seen in you know a process of hiring it at the early stage um, and, a, and an example of failure? You know, what could have been done to uh, manage that or ensure it was a successful outcome? Probably a a failure was as many, many years ago as a relatively small company. And they were looking for a CFO, if you will, but there's a difference between a CFO and a VP of finance. And probably the biggest mistake looking back now as if anything is making sure that you're aligned on expectations. Ultimately, um, I don't know if I could say it was a failure, but the person that we that we ended up bringing on board may ultimately have been right for that stage of growth, but wasn't what they needed two years down the road. Mm-hmm. So I think the mistake, looking back, what we would have done differently is to really press and say, okay, this person that we're bringing to you based upon the compensation parameters you gave us, they fit the spec right now. 
Uh, but knowing what we know now, I think I'd go back and say, is that really what you need? Or are you going to be going back to the market in two years? So really try to think beyond uh, not this role, but in an ideal world, can you attract someone maybe even over hire, quite frankly, if you're able to, because in the long run, if you can retain that person, it would probably save you the, the headache of having to upgrade maybe two, three years down the road. Mm-hmm. So that's probably, the, I would say not maybe a mistake, but I think that was a bit of a miss where we could have been more consultative and tried to push our client to hire what they needed a little bit over the horizon and pay a little bit more. In the long mm-hmm. run, I think they probably would have benefited from doing that. Okay, great. I have another question that we haven't really discussed, but it came to my mind. Um, okay. What is the value or danger in having a kind of form job description versus putting thoughtful kind of words behind, you know, a job description for a role that you're looking to fill? Or would you say, yeah. you know, form is fine. You just got to know to ask the right questions in the interview. I find the position description to be, I personally believe it is more of a marketing document than it is the what I use for primarily evaluating candidates. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're going to put in there what's really important mm-hmm. for sure, but I, I think you can get wrapped around the axle and having a perfect position description. I think uh, what's probably most important is having the must-haves and the nice-to-haves. I also believe that you need to, especially if it's a newly created position, but generally be ready to, uh, we like to advise our clients at times where what you think you want may be different based upon the talent that you see. Mm-hmm. So don't be wed to the position description just because that's what you put together on a piece of paper. You may find that over time, what you're able to attract in the market, your must-haves and nice-to-haves may actually evolve a little bit throughout. So I think it's a, it's a blueprint it's a framework. It's a good starting point, but don't be so rigid that you miss out on good candidates who may be actually what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the last piece is don't be so wed to every aspect of it that you're, you're being paralyzed by the pursuit of perfection. I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question, but I think that's how I view a position description. And then, and now I promise this is the last one. <laughs> no problem. Um, any any tricks of the trade or you know feedback that you would offer to an early stage startup that we haven't gone over here? Yeah, I, w- I would say any company in general, not even just an early stage startup. When it comes to talent, you need to have a I think really a holistic approach to it. It includes identification, planning, talent acquisition or recruiting and retention, all these things we talked about. And when you do reach the point where you need to fill a critical position, be ready to act quickly and decisively uh, because it is hyper competitive out there. And I think you need to plan this ahead as far as you can, obviously, because if you, I think it's easy to underestimate how long it's going to take or how competitive it might be, especially in the current and the foreseeable future market to attract talent. If you think you can hire someone in short order and you need that person critically, you better bake in extra time to try to attract them because it's good. It's, it's going to be maybe tougher to attract people than you think. And you don't want to be left shorthanded. Those are my views on, I'd want to think him that came to mind. I can't remember right now, but I think those are some of the keys to success or, or the, the tricks of the trade, if you will, or just 
just themes. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. This was super insightful. And I know the Cyber Mentor Fund portfolio, you know, startups everywhere and people trying to get into this industry will find a lot of value in the conversation. Well, good. Thank you. It's It's been fun. I appreciate it. the time went quickly. If there's any other questions you might have in the future, I'd be happy to do it again. Amazing. Thanks so much, Jamie. See you later. Thanks.